Amen. So I went to this conference a number of years ago, and I got seated next to a rabbi. I asked him, so should I refer to you as a Hebrew, a Jew, or an Israelite? And he responded, yes. And then there was about two seconds, and he said, and no. Now, by the way, I know that kind of answer usually frustrates people, but me, I love it because I know I'm about to go to school and learn something. Hebrew, Jew, and Israelite all refer to the same group of people, but each term is specific as to its origins and its history. Hebrew is first used in Genesis 14, verse 13, where it says, Abram, the Hebrew. Now, most theologians align it with the Hebrew word for to cross over, because God told Abraham to leave Ur and cross over the Euphrates River. Thus, the descendants of Abraham are Hebrews because, along with him, they crossed over and followed God where he was leading. Now, Israel comes from Genesis chapter 32, verse 28. Jacob, which translates roughly as heel grabber or one who follows behind, has his name changed by God to Israel. Now, that translates as God contends. And it's because Jacob wrestled with God all night on the shores of the river Jabbok. And he refused to let go until God blessed him. Because the 12 tribes descend from Jacob, they are Ben Israel, meaning the children of Israel, or Israelites. Now, as to Jews or Jewish, well, after the death of King Solomon, around 930 BC, the nation split into a northern and a southern kingdom. Now, the 10 tribes up north were called Israel. The two southern tribes became known as Judah. The northern kingdom was conquered by Assyria in 722 BC. Now, the southern kingdom, which included Jerusalem and Solomon's temple, it was conquered 125 years later in 597 B.C. And by the way, both the city and the temple were destroyed. Now, the people were taken captive, and most of them, anyone who was of any use, was moved to Babylon. We call this the Babylonian captivity. Around 457 B.C., the prophet Ezra and Nehemiah began the long process of restoring the nation of Israel and the temple in preparation of the coming of the Messiah, Jesus. In Ezra 4.12, we find these words. Let it be known to the king that the Jews who came from you have returned to us at Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and evil city, finishing its walls and repairing its foundations. Now, this is the first reference to the people as Jews. The word comes from the Hebrew Yehuda or Judah. And it means descendants of Judah. Oh, and if you remember, Judah was the lineage from whom the Messiah was going to come from. So why the history lesson? Well, I'll be honest. No one is sure what to call anybody today. Every term is offensive to someone. Or it doesn't say everything that they wanted to say. So you either have to add things, subtract things, or use a whole different term. Or in most cases, someone has taken a very good word rich with meaning and history, and made it unusable by associating it with something unholy or politically incorrect. And thus, even though we know what we mean by the word, no one is willing to listen because they say, oh, you're one of them. You know, the problem is not the words. It is the misunderstanding and the misuse of words by people. And in our individualistic culture, since what I think is the only thing that really matters because I'm so much more important than everybody else, therefore you must use the words and the terms I want to use and understand them the way that I understand them. Oh, and by the way, I don't have to explain anything to you. You just need to accept what I think and say. 
Yeah, that's, we've created a real mess for ourselves, haven't we? A few years ago, we switched to a new translation for our Sunday morning scripture readings. It took a while to settle on which version. Now, the ESV is a much better translation, but it does not read well. The NIV 1984 version, which, by the way, originally came out in 78, still my favorite version, but, well, it's no longer available. And the newer NIV version, way too many cultural changes. Oh, yeah, it's much more understandable and reader-friendly, reader, reader friendly, but it's not faithful to the original manuscripts. Now, I chose the Christian Standard Bible because it strikes a balance between readability, understanding, and faithfulness to the original manuscripts. It's not perfect, but one of the things I really like is, instead of the generic term God, it goes back to saying Yahweh. Now, the word Yahweh is first found in the fourth chapter of Genesis, but it's in Exodus when Moses says, So, God, who should I say sent me and told them to do these things when they ask? And God says, I am. And the deeper meaning is, everything exists because I am. Yahweh. You know, when I first became a Lutheran, Pastor Hinchy started each service with a liturgically appropriate verse. He would start off and we would respond. During the Pentecost season, he would say, In many and various ways, God spoke to his people of old by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through his Son. Those are the opening words from the book of Hebrews. Now, as I mentioned last week, we aren't sure who wrote the book of Hebrews. I think St. Paul dictated it to either Luke or Barnabas because it has so much rich Pauline theology that either he wrote it or somebody Paul mentored wrote it. Now, the challenge is it's far more poetic than Paul's normal writing. In other words, it flows a lot better. It's really more of a sermon. And that gave me an idea. Maybe that's how it happened. St. Paul was preaching up a storm one day, and Luke or Barnabas wrote it all down, which explains why it's a little different, because they wrote down what they remembered hearing, not a literal translation, because Paul didn't have, well, a computer or a you know, phone to uh, make a recording of it so that they could just transcribe it. What I love most about Hebrews is that it keeps pointing us back to Jesus. It says, stop worshiping angels. Stop worshiping yourself. Stop worshiping stuff. If you're going to worship, worship the only thing worth worshiping, and that's the God who saved you. Now, except the Hebrew book doesn't use a generic term like God, like the Christian Standard Bible, because, you see, almost anyone anywhere can use the word God. And, and well, they say, well, no, all, the, all of us worship the same God. That's not always true. You see, like my friend Inigo Montoya from Princess Bride says, I don't think that word means what you think it means. Or maybe I don't know what it really means. Hebrews points very clearly to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It points to the Son of God, born, lived, suffered, died, risen, and ascended. It points with focused precision to the one that we had been waiting for and maybe still are waiting for, even if we didn't know it, because he's the only one who can save us and make sense out of this life. And if you have any doubts about this saving God, our text says, Indeed, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing until it divides soul from spirit, joints from marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. The writer warns, if you think you can just run around using generic terms like God, 
but you don't know or care who that God really is, you might want to read God's Word again because it's a little more complicated than that. You see, God is not a generic God. He has a name. He wants a relationship. He is who He is, or as He put it, I am, which means I was, I am now, and I always will be. You know, this past month I had to fix the kitchen sink drain, my computer, and my truck. All three were broken, and the estimates were pretty high to get them fixed. So I decided I would fix them all myself. Now, out of the three, I was only able to fix one of them, and that's my computer. I already told you, my neighbor, the mechanic, had to help me fix my truck. And I actually had to bring in a plumber to fix the kitchen sink. You see, there are times, and it doesn't matter how much and how willing, oh, and, and, and you know, just how great you think you are that even with all the YouTube videos and manual downloads that you just can't fix something yourself. You need a professional. The Bible is not just ink and paper. For the first few thousand years, it wasn't written down. The Bible was shared person to person. It was intimate. By the way, it was intimate even in crowds of thousands. It was four-dimensional, reaching the very depths of the heart and soul. You know, when God says, my word does not return to me empty, but it always accomplishes the task for which I sent it, it's because His Word is living and active. So, have you ever downloaded, bought, borrowed, or stolen a self-help resource? There was something about you that you knew you needed to fix. Either somebody pointed it out or it's something that really has been bothering you. You Googled, duck, duck, binged how to fix my fill-in-the-blank, and the top-rated books or videos appeared. And you read it, or you read some of it. And on Wednesday, you decided, well, Monday was the day that you were going to be a new person. Now, you'd start earlier, but you needed one more weekend to be in your old self because you've kind of grown attached to it. Because after all, once you're a new person, there's going to be no going back. Boy, you're just going to keep moving forward. But Monday comes. Now, for the first few hours, everything is going great. Yeah, but then your alarm goes off and you wake up and everything just kind of goes downhill from there. You see, that's the problem with two-dimensional fixes. We need a word that isn't a science textbook, a psychology principle, a history lesson, or a guilt-motivated process. We need a word that works on and in each of us, no matter who we are, no matter where we live, and no matter what needs to be fixed in us. We need a word that will work, not one that might work. We need a word that cares about us, not our checkbook, not our social media status, or our ethnic heritage. We need a word that sees through us, all of us, sees through everything so that nothing, nothing at all is hidden. In our lessons last week, a rich young man who had checked off all of the boxes and done all the right things and had the investment portfolio, the clothes, the house, and the donkey to prove it, he comes to Jesus and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I don't think it was a rhetorical question. I don't think he was expecting Jesus to say, are you kidding? You're overqualified. God should be so lucky to have somebody like you in heaven. No, this rich young ruler, in spite of everything he had made of himself, he was still unsure that it was enough. He probably thought he was close, wanted to make sure that there wasn't one more box somewhat hidden that he needed to tick off. When Jesus starts off, follow all of God's commands, you know what they are. The rich young man got excited. He says, all these I have kept since I was a young kid. Jesus looks at him, looks into his heart. Knows how much this person really, really wants to be like Abraham and cross over to follow God, be a son of Israel, a descendant of Judah from whom the promised one is going to come. But Jesus also knows his response is about to crush the young man's heart. 
Sell everything you have, all of it. Give the money to the poor and then come and follow me. Jesus says the rich young man has to be stripped of everything that he has so that the only thing left is himself. What do you have to offer God? If God were to show up physically today, oh, and by the way, I know he's here. There's that promise, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there's more than two or three of us. But if he were to make himself known through a pillar of fire on the altar, or Morgan Freeman's voice coming through the baptismal font, or for those of you who are watching online, maybe suddenly out of the microwave or the plant over in the corner, and he were to ask you to render unto him a worthy sacrifice, a gift befitting the King of kings and the Lord of lords, what would you offer him? How much is heaven worth to you? What would you be willing to pay? Is there anything, by the way, that you might try to hold back, something that you just don't want to give up? Out of everything you've done, what would be so precious and valuable that you think God would accept it and say, yeah, that's enough. Come on in. You know, the moment we isolate this verse down to money and wealth, we've missed the point completely. For this rich young ruler, it was wealth. It was wealth that was going to keep him out of heaven. And Jesus goes on to talk about the camel and the eye of a needle and money and wealth. But you see, all of us are different. What would it be for you? All of us have something that we love so much that we're not sure that we can give it up. And if we're not careful, we start relying on words that make us sound all holy and saved. But because our heart and soul aren't in them, we're really unholy and lost. Because you see, the words only matter if they're true. We can call ourselves a believer, a Christian, a follower of Jesus. But if our heart and soul aren't in them, they're just words. You see, God doesn't care about our outside, no matter how pretty it is. He doesn't care what words we use to describe ourselves or what words other people use to describe us. He cares about us, and His word divides us until, by the way, the only thing left is our soul. The rich young man has nothing that could justify him before God. Oh, he could go back to work and become the richest, most powerful, influential person in the world. doesn't matter how much he has. It'll never be enough. When he asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It was a mixed metaphor. You don't do anything to inherit. You inherit something because you're family, either by blood or you're Hanai. You inherit it out of love. The doing is God's work, not his, yours, or mine always God's. So, God makes the impossible possible. God saves those who could not save themselves or, by the way, save others. You know how us Christians go around saying grace is free? Not true. We don't pay a dime or anything for it, so it is free to us. But somebody had to pay for it. The price of grace, the cost of us getting saved, was God sacrificing the most precious, important part of himself, his son. And there's the challenge. A living, active word begins working on us, then in us, shattering our composure, self-reliance, and stubborn platitudes, our trust in names and titles, and it points us toward a God whose radical love is more than we could ever deserve or ever hope for. And yet it is given to us freely, and in such measure, it actually fills us up to overflowing so that it begins to flow out and into the world around us. When Jesus lays out grace and mercy before the disciples, they cry out, well, Who then can be saved? 
And Jesus just smiles because they've still got it upside down. But pretty soon, they're going to see him dying on the cross. And it's all going to come into focus when they realize that they were asking the wrong question. You see, the correct question is who can't be saved? And the answer to that is only those who won't let God save them. The rich young ruler is the only person in the entire Gospel of Mark who it says Jesus loved him. I think this is important and telling. You see, the the rich young ruler walked away that day. But Jesus still saw something in him. And so I always picture this rich young man a few years later coming home from a big business luncheon where once again he made a huge fortune for himself. And as he's walking down the road counting his money, he sees three crosses. And then he realizes he recognizes the one on the middle cross. The one who's dying there. Who's crying out, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And it's finished. And the words of that man come to mind. What good is it if a man gains the whole world but forfeits his soul in the process? You know, when Jesus said, go and sell all that you have and give your money to the poor, then come and follow me, Jesus never said that the valid offer was only good for 24 hours. Or if he signed off right then, he'd throw in a second Ginzu knife just for the the price of shipping and handling. You see, some of us need a little more time for everything to make sense, to reprioritize our life, to process what it is that Jesus is offering and what it's going to take on our part, the sacrifices that have to be made. You see, the same goes for all of us. It's not always easy to figure this whole Jesus thing out. But when that living, active word gets a hold of us, The impossible becomes possible. And sometimes sooner and sometimes later, we find ourselves able to do things that we never imagined, but which God knew were possible all along because He looked into our heart and He loved us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.